0: Please join us in giving special thanks to our family of patrons Storyfolk Paul Jackson, Christy Carson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selena Vokenhaar. Thanks to their support, the stories keep flowing. You're listening to Lore and Legend Tales from Our Mythic Past. Hello and welcome. I'm Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. If you're enjoying the episode today, please consider joining Christy, Paul, Sean, Shawnee and Selina as patrons and help to pay for the music, the audio effects, the art and the technology that we use to enhance our telling of these wonderful stories. If you go to our website at www lawandlegend.co.uk and click support us, you can find out how. Our story today is from Jake Evans from Sutton Farm in Shropshire, here in the United Kingdom. Jake is a storyteller with what he describes in his own words as a bottomless appetite for potent stories and adventures. He makes a living performing his stories live at schools, libraries, hospitals, heritage sites and community events. Before he discovered storytelling, Jake was passionate about the natural world with a keen interest in animals and ecology, which led him towards a career in the natural sciences. But an encounter with the Young Storytelling of the Year competition and the Myth Stories Museum of Myth and Fable set him on a new path to becoming an artist and a performer. To this day, Jake's stories continue to be inspired by the landscape and its wildlife. And he combines his love of story with frequent explorations of Britain's windswept moors, deep woods, and ancient coastlines. As well as hearing about Jake's storytelling journey, our conversation recorded last year during lockdown explores the different ways in which Jake has been using social media and technology to keep in touch with his audiences and how he will continue to use it in his career going forward. I'm happy to report that with the recent lifting of lockdown restrictions in the UK, Jake is already seeing a revival in bookings for his live storytelling performances. But we're going to start now with Jake's story, which may be at once new and familiar to some of you. Jake is telling us the tale
1: of When the Dog. So I start this story in Shropshire, where I'm from. but hundreds and hundreds of years ago and in those days in Shropshire there were no cars, there were no roads, there were no towns, all there was for mile after mile was forest and if you stood on top of one of the Shropshire hills and looked out towards the horizon it looked like a green carpet in every single direction. Now in the middle of this forest there lived a hunter and his name was Roden, and he lived in a small wooden hut with the rest of his family. He had a wife, called Vernwy, and she was from over the border in Wales. And also, he had a baby boy called Ewan, who was still learning how to walk. He was tiny, crawling around. And he had one other member of his family, Rodan, and this member had four legs. He had a hunting hound. And this hound was called Wem. Now, Wem is a small town in the north of Shropshire, and I like to think that Wem is named after this very dog. And Wem was strong, he was loyal, he could run for miles and miles without stopping. But unfortunately, Wem the dog had one problem. He always had a load of phlegm hanging from his mouth. And that might be the reason why he was called Wem. Wem the phlegmy dog. And I'm going to indulge myself now and just show you how phlegmy he was. Because he'd slobber like this. All over Roden, And he'd slobber. All over Vermeer. And he'd even slobber all over poor little baby boy Ewan. And so, for that reason, he had to sleep outside. But he was a dog, he had thick fur, he didn't mind. And in the mornings, Rodan would open the front door of his hut and he'd shout out, <coughs> Worm! And he'd hear boom, 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 boom. And when the dog would come running from behind the hut, he'd run up to Rodan, put his paws on his shoulders, and give him a great big. And then they go off into the trees hunting together. And it was one morning, a sunny day, Rodin decided he needed to go hunting. So he opened the front door of his hut and he shouted out for his dog Wem! And he waited for that heavy, poor foot coming towards him in the slobbery sound. But instead, there was silence. So he tried again, a second time, shouting out, and still when was nowhere to be seen. And he tried a third time, but even on that third occasion, when didn't come. So he went off with his bow and arrow into the forest on his own to try and find something to hunt. And he hadn't gone far, when on the ground he saw the tracks of a deer. He thought, perfect, it's just what he wanted. And he followed those tracks, weaving through the trees, over hills, splashing through streams, until he got to a clearing where there stood a magnificent white stag, with antlers on its head that spanned several metres across and he very carefully got out his bow and arrow, and he pulled back the string, and he was just about to let go, when for some reason, his feet started to tingle, and he looked down at his feet, and Rodan was standing right in the middle of an ant's nest, and hundreds of little ants were crawling up his boots, and down into his socks, and biting his feet, and his toes, and he didn't want to make a noise, because he didn't want to scare the deer away, but The ants kept crawling up his legs and they went into his underpants and they started biting him in there as well. And then they went under his armpits and then one went right to the end of his nose. And when it got there, it bit him and he couldn't hold it in any longer. Rodan ripped off his clothes, screaming in agony, trying to get the ants off him. And he rolled around naked for a while until he had all the ants off and he put his clothes back on and he looked over to the deer and he expected to see it running away because he made a lot of noise. But the deer was standing there and mocking him. It had a stupid smile on its face, a bit like this. And it was prancing up and down as if to say, chase me. And Rodan forgot about his bow and arrow. And in his anger, he just started to run after the deer as quickly as he could on his own two little legs. And the deer knew it could play a game with that stupid human. So it pranced through the trees with that stupid smile and then it would stop. Almost let him catch up. Almost. And then, just as Rodan was about to grab the deer by its tail, it would shake its bottom right in his face and then burst off with a renewed speed. And they did that for miles and miles until eventually they got to a swamp. And the deer jumped from one side of the swamp all the way to the other side in a single leap. And then it was Rodan's turn. And he took a run up and he jumped up into the sky, but with his big heavy boots, he landed splat right in the middle of that bog right up to his knees and he was stuck and he tried to squelch his way through to the other side and then he realised that he'd left one of his boots back on the other side of the, on the swamp so on one leg he was hopping back to try and get his shoe and he looked at the deer and the deer was now prancing about so much and shaking its bottom so vigorously in his direction. Rodan lost his balance and he fell headfirst into the swamp and he had mud in his eyes, in his ears in his mouth and even up his nose, and as he squirted the mud out of his nostrils, it looked like brown snot. And then he said some horrible words that I can't repeat now, and the deer was so shocked by what Rodin had said. It finished its game, and ran off into the trees, and Rodin was finally on his own again. And he started to walk back home. And it was a long way, it took him the rest of the day, and when he finally got back to his hut, he heard a familiar sound. Boom and from behind the hut there came Wem the dog slobbering everywhere and he ran up to Rodan and he put his paws on his shoulders and gave him a great big Rodan pushed him down Where have you been? There was a stag today that I needed your help catching What have you been doing? And then for the first time Roden looked properly at Wem's face and he realised to his horror that Wem's jowls was stained red with blood, and a horrible thought crossed his mind. What if Wemmers hurt my son? And he rushed inside of his hut, and the scene that met him was one of absolute carnage. The chairs were smashed, the table was destroyed, the curtains were all ripped, and everything was covered in blood, even the baby's blanket in the corner of the room. And so Rodan, grabbed Wem by the scruff of his neck and he got out his hunting knife and he looked down at the dog. You monster you killed my son and he was just about to plunge that knife into Wem's heart, when out the corner of his eye, the blanket it moved. So he dropped the knife, and he let go of Wem, and he went over to the blanket, and he lifted it up, and there he found his baby boy Ewan, without a single scratch on him. He was fine, unharmed. And he picked him up like this, and now Rodan was really confused. Where did all the blood come from? What's happened? And that's when he saw that the back door of the hut was also just slightly ajar, with another trail of blood leading out of it. And he went to the door, and he pushed it, and there he now found the body of a huge wolf with yellow eyes, long teeth, long canines, and a bite mark in its neck. And now finally, Rodan realised what had happened, because that morning, Wem the dog had smelt the wolf prowling around, and he knew he was going to have to stay behind and protect the family. And that's what he'd done on his own. He'd fought off the wolf, killed it, and saved the baby's life. And so, from that day, Rodan and Wem the dog were even firmer friends and he learnt that sometimes before you act and make a mistake, like he almost did with his own best friend, Wem the Dog, you should stop and take a deep breath and think. So this story is the first story that I actually ever learnt to perform properly to a, an audience. So I gave this story my first outing um, when I won the under eighteen national young storyteller of the year competition in two thousand and nine, so I was fifteen, and it was my first chance of storytelling to a, to an audience, and um, and the audience there are, are were on your side, so it was a very friendly, comfortable atmosphere. So it was a good a good platform to have a go at storytelling for the first time, and uh, so this is a story quite close to my heart, and I, I picked the story because. Um, my family had one old Celtic fairy tale book. So we were flicking through that the night before the competition and trying to think of a story which, which would work. Um, so this is the story that we, we picked out. And then a few years later after I, I did this competition, this was still only the real story that I, the only the only story that I really knew like the back of my hand. So there was a few others that I had a, a go at. But at that point, I hadn't really taken storytelling very seriously. It was a bit of a quirky thing that I just like to put on my CV for my uni application and, and things like that and then I was lucky enough in my last year of sixth form to go on a um, a school trip to Kenya with a few of my own colleagues and then my biology teacher because we had a partnership scheme with a school in western rural Kenya and when we handed out a lot of the um, PE equipment and, and maths kit and things like that and um, all the the reason why we're there the the real purpose for visiting the schools you know there's a bit of awkwardness a bit of uh yeah definite a bit of an awkward atmosphere because it was like well what do we give now like it was all a bit stilted and a bit odd and so I suggested to my biology teacher why don't I try telling the Africans a story because I know one story really well I'm, I'm confident enough to give it a go and he said oh if you want to just go for it then I, I'm sure they'd listen and for them, for the Kenyans, it was a bit of a, a novelty definitely seeing um, a Westerner performing something that was quite quite different from what they expect Western people to be doing. Because usually, in their eyes, in this rural part of Kenya, they didn't really see white people at all, let alone telling stories and being exuberant and, and really having fun and making strange noises. And the reaction I got back from the Kenyans telling that story because there were maybe a couple hundred kids watching was so amazing it really gripped me and that's when storytelling really got under my skin as a like a powerful art form which can really bridge across cultures and and language differences and things like that so so this is the story that I told to the Kenyans as well so that's why it's got like a, a a special place in my heart um it's the first story that I told and it's the one that really got me hooked on storytelling when I had a go performing it in Kenya and it's a famous is a is a famous story. So anyone who knows anything about traditional storytelling knows this story. Um, but I have twisted the ending slightly from how I used to to tell it. So hopefully the purists that know this story aren't too upset about my little tweak at the ending. It's the legend of Beth Gellet. and usually it has a tragic ending. But um, I found that because it was for a long time the only story that I really knew really well. It wasn't actually a very appropriate story for many occasions because it's got a tragic, sad ending with its original original ending. So I twisted at the end, and and I know I know that the story loses quite a lot of its power and its punch by changing changing it. But um, it's such a good story. It's still got a good message and moral to it, but it does lose a little bit of its um its potency with with making it a little bit more child friendly. But for a while, it was for a while it was you know one of the only stories that I had in my repertoire. So it was a shame that I couldn't use it more often. But um, I, I I I could understand why with some storytellers they would sort of bristle at me changing it. So obviously at the end.
0: Yeah. First question then. Uh, why why are you passionate about storytelling? What is it that attracted you to it?
1: Well, what first attracted me to storytelling was just the desire to perform, really. I wasn't brought up in a a folky family, which storytelling often goes hand in hand with, with the folk tradition and uh, folk festivals and the scene. So I did drama at school and school plays and productions, but I decided not to pursue drama for my my A-levels or GCSEs, but I still had this desire to perform. And I saw a storytelling competition advertised outside my English classroom, which was the National Young Storyteller of the Year competition, which was run by the traditional arts team. And I was intrigued by storytelling. I didn't actually know it was an art form that you could do as a profession. And I'll admit, I was also drawn in by the first prize, which was 50 quid. I thought, well, 10 minutes to tell a traditional story, I could could have a go at that. So I went along to the competition and I suppose with a big ch- chunk of beginner's luck I chose a good story which the judges liked and I managed to win. So my eyes were open to this world of traditional storytelling then. So at first I just liked performing and and I suppose being in the limelight but then obviously as I got more into the storytelling and into the art form I, I found all the depths of stories of the things you can learn and the Uh, the morals and the connections you can have with your audience and and that's what I'm passionate about now when not when I do my work and but at first I must admit it was just it was just the the desire to perform to people and and have fun and now it's now it's become more of a a deeper passion for me a, a vocation.
0: How many how many of the Young Storyteller competitions did you go to because I actually think that I saw you at one of those competitions when I was in Birmingham uh but I'm not sure if it was the first one
1: I actually went to several because the the platform of the competition was just a really good opportunity to tell a story to an audience of people that are friendly and on your side and it's and when you're learning stories and you can't practice really at home as you know you, you the only way you can really learn how to tell a story well is is with an audience and this the competition was uh, yeah was a good platform with people who were going to be encouraging and so i went to the competition every year for i think 6 years or 5 in a row mm. and and just because i enjoyed the experience and i like listening to other stories from other storytellers but also there was there was the incentive of it was a competition as well and i i enjoyed of course, the the goal of trying to to win the the competition every year, but more than that, it was just a really lovely atmosphere and a, and a good opportunity to to practice stories with a with an audience who are going to be sympathetic. When you're learning your trade or when you first get going with storytelling, it's quite nerve wracking. Yeah, it can be quite difficult, mm. can't it? I think I think that puts a lot of people off um, getting into it because it's not you, you need an audience to be patient to to listen to you and it and it's quite it can be quite awkward to ask just one or two people a family member to to listen to you tell a story for 20 minutes i i find with a bigger audience i feel more confident than with with a small audience or a few people it gives me more license to be more theatrical and over the top and it doesn't seem so ridiculous
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a much more intimate experience, isn't it? With only, yeah, only a few and people.
1: Yeah, so I I had to learn when I started telling stories in in settings where I was getting paid to do it how to tone it back a little because most of my storytelling is with quite a big audience and mostly children so the energy has to be high and you have to be keeping them engaged and and then with just a few people or, or a couple of adults you have to you tone Tone the story back a little, what is your storytelling
0: style what What kind of stories do you tend to pick uh you've already said what kind of, like you a lot of your work's aimed at at kids and and schools
1: yeah it, it is mostly with most of the work is with children but um it isn't it isn't the storytelling that I really enjoy most. There's something magic about telling stories to children because they don't have any cynicism and they'll laugh if they think you're funny and if they don't, they'll get up and walk out. So mm-hmm. I like that challenge. But every now and again, I do have work in secondary schools and with sixth formers. And then I do the odd storytelling club with an adult audience. And, and those, those evenings or those gigs are the stories, uh, are, the, are the jobs that I really, really enjoy because you can delve deeper into darker stories and stories with, with deeper meanings to them. And I tell folk stories and myths and legends and things I've heard from other storytellers. But I do often mix in historical stories as well. So I do quite a long piece about the polar explorer Ernest Shackleton, um, which so it's not a traditional tale, but it's so incredible. It could almost be a fairy tale, the, the experiences that some of these polar explorers went through. So I I do a mixture of stories, but the base of it, the base of my repertoire is traditional tales and folk tales. But then I I I read lots of different books and and things I've seen in documentaries and I, I put them into my storytelling sessions as well, because I think variety is the spice of life
0: when you're doing stuff for schools then do you have particular subjects do you you facilitate different parts of the curriculum
1: or how do you how do you pitch that to to schools generally um so in in schools yeah I, I pitch to them usually I can do any topic because I don't like to to pigeonhole myself but that's too much often the choice for school so I like to narrow it down or give them options of things to do with nature and science and wildlife. And so that fits in with recycle, recycling and topics they might be doing with sustainability and then myths and legends, the Greeks, Norse, which are uh, staples that lots of, lots of uh, storytellers have. And then I'll do polar explorers and Tudors, things of history. And then around the topic, Romans, Greeks, Lots of um, lots of topics and history, and then I'll try and work out how to to mix in folk tales towards what they're doing in their history or geography or science.
0: In your work in schools, how well known are folk tales? Because I've heard some people saying that even even ones you'd expect kids to know, like Red Riding Hood, that they're actually not as well known now as they used to be.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. That that surprises me. So I actually tend to steer myself away from the classically famous fairy tales because i think as soon as you say the name of some of these stories that people might not know the story but they know the the title of the story i find that a lot of people stereotypically will hear those uh the, those famous story titles and they'll they might even roll their eyes or because <laughs> they think it's it's a childish a childish thing so i tend to steer myself away from the really famous stories are the ones that people have heard of, and I try to find other folk tales, more obscure ones, and, and myths and legends that people haven't heard before. So I found, when I work in schools, because I'm telling the more obscure stories, I I don't really know whether this whether children are aware of these little Red Riding Hoods and Three Little Pigs or not. Um, because I don't actually tell those stories very often or actually hardly at all.
0: Yes, I think that's uh, an experience that a lot of storytellers can relate
1: to. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. How do um how do teachers respond to it? So um most of the time teachers will enjoy it as well and they'll they'll watch and they'll listen. And I always I always feel I've done my job really well if the teachers stop marking their books at the side of the classroom to listen as well and and watch <laughs> properly, which <laughs> do, isn't always the case. And I, I don't always, I don't begrudge uh, teachers doing that because <laughs> their jobs are very stressful. And I think when they get the opportunity to, to get ahead with their marking, um, if I'm with their class for an hour, they, they sometimes sit in the side and, and start marking. But I always feel a, it's a personal triumph <laughs> if they start marking, but halfway through they put their marking book down and start listening as well and, and joining in, which does happen quite a lot. Which is nice. Which is nice for me when that does happen.
0: I guess um, one thing which may not come across when people are listening to your story because it's a podcast, but uh, I certainly remember you uh, very enthusiastic uh, sort of body language and use of the space. So is uh, how how aware yeah. of that are you as part of your storytelling?
1: Yeah, I'm quite a, a physical performer, so I like having. I like having fun with stories. I like moving around and, and, and with, with children, I think being quite uh, exuberant and energetic helps them stay engaged with the stories. I think probably as I get a bit older or as I get more mature with my storytelling, I might not have to rely on physical humour and, and slapstick things quite as much. And I can rely on just having good stories to to keep people engaged but at the moment I really enjoy dancing around and making silly faces and making silly noises of different animals so I'll, I'm not going to stop <laughs> storytelling like that yet.
0: <laughs> I suspect that many performers uh, myself included don't feel very free to actually engage in all that kind of stuff so um, you know to a sense I think that it's very good for a storyteller to be able to unself-consciously contact that
1: side of of things that's all, that's my my natural style being quite physical and i i, I think uh, you've got to be careful not to overdo that and move around too much i mean storytelling is subjective everyone has personal tastes of storytellers that they like and and different styles and some people might like watching a storyteller being quite still and, and controlled. But you've got to just stay true to yourself, haven't you? So uh, I, I'll never be a storyteller who could sit down for a, a whole hour on a chair and, and do minimal movements and gestures. But I think I, I can still learn a different... I can adapt my storytelling, I think, as I, as I get a little older and as, as I get more experience to not always rely on... The physical humor and elements of the stories, and, and and use words to hook an audience instead.
0: What's your kind of ideal story then to work on? Is there? Have you got any sort of
1: projects that you really want to tackle? Or? I've got several. I've got several ideas of like a big piece, but there's not really any driving incentive for me to to spend hours and hours working on a, a show because at the moment that's. Uh, an hour-long piece with a with a, a big epic story. It's not really appropriate for most of the storytelling that I'm doing. Most of the storytelling is in national trust places or in schools where episodic 10-minute, 15-minute stories are the right stories to tell. So, so I haven't I haven't really got any um, any big project on the go. However, I'm interested in lots of flood myths. And if I was commissioned by a, a festival or or somewhere to do a a longer show with more of a more of a adult audience or just solely for adults, aimed at adults really instead of children. Yeah, working out how to how to tell myths and legends in a way that's relevant to for people today or or relevant to to make it more mainstream to cross over into an audience that. Might not be pos- very familiar with storytelling. So, and I think climate change is a huge issue, of course. And I think a lot of flood myths were inspired by real events in prehistoric times with hmm. the ice age finishing and glaciers melting. And there were, and scientists have worked out, haven't they? There's, there's evidence to show there were cataclysmic floods across different parts of the world. When the ice caps melted, which I think is quite it, you know, it's it's a, good, it's a good sign that that's what inspired lots of these flood myths. So I was interested I'm interested in maybe piecing together uh, three or four flood myths from different colds, putting it into a show, linking on to climate change today and the challenges that we might face over the um, the decades coming up. From what I've seen of your stuff,
0: both your art and your storytelling, uh, animals do seem to come up quite a lot. So, would you say that you are sort of quite ecologically minded?
1: Yeah, my my initial or my first uh, dream job before I before I left school was to become a, a zoologist. I actually went to university to study zoology. I'm very interested in. Animals and the natural world, but it wasn't really until I started studying zoology that I realised that I wasn't cut out to be a scientist. My my interest in zoology is, is broad, and I didn't want to focus on one one area really specifically, which was which is what scientists have to do when they when they when they get to the third years with dissertations, and then in their careers after that they have to focus even more intensely on some area of of animals or wildlife so i i I was at that point when i was at university i I was really quite i was really quite depressed because i didn't really know what i wanted to do then i'd spent all my years of school and sixth form with this goal of going to university to study zoology and then when i started doing it it was like a a punch in the gut and I, i felt i felt like i'd chosen the wrong thing to do I hated the time in the labs and doing the maths and the statistics, yeah. <laughs> and I was aware of—I was aware that I was going to have to do that when I signed up to apply to university, but I—I I wasn't quite prepared for how much statistics there would be, and which was a bit naive, and also <laughs> I thought maybe the lectures or the the the, um, the stuff that I was learning and other elements of the course would be enough to outweigh the. maths that I knew I'd have to do but it wasn't
0: Mm.
1: deep down I'm an arty person instead of a scientist Mm. but luckily at that point I'd already I found I found out about storytelling and I'd started doing a little bit of part-time work with storytelling so I knew there were professional storytellers and I thought well I'll, I'll I'll throw my lot in with with storytelling and I'll give that a go and 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 I'll try and mix in stories with animals and nature and I can inspire children in a different way to appreciate the natural world. So, yeah, lots of my stories have animals in them. And at the end of the storytelling sessions in schools, I'll say to children, which bits do you think are true? Or Which bits do you think are, are made up or exaggerated to talk about the story after afterwards? Um, so we can discuss what what parts of the story are fantastical and what parts are real. And I'll try and mix in facts as well so then to to choose and and, and pick out. It gives it gives me a structure. It gives me a purpose for telling the stories as well. Yes, I recognize that. Um, I'm more
0: of a storyteller and more of a a creative and a curator of history than I was a uh, a, a careful, analytical. Uh, historical mind. Um,
1: so what is the life of a storyteller like then? Well, I enjoy it immensely. Uh, I always, always enjoy going to work, which is a real privilege for me. And I, people say to me quite often, oh, you're so, um, they, they say they admire me for, for doing something that I love, but I can't, I can't see how people can do a job every day that they don't enjoy. And I've just got full admiration and respect for people who, who go to work and do the same thing every single day. And I hate routine. I'm terrified of boredom. So the storytelling job that I've carved out for myself, it, it always keeps me on my toes. I go to new places, meet loads of new people, and it staves off the boredom. So I, I go to schools a lot and uh, birthday parties. And, sometimes hospitals the, the strangest gig I've had is in a prison Stoke Heath prison the family liaison officer at the prison she had seen me with her own children storytelling at some festival or I think or something something like that and she organizes at the prison days when the families come to visit their their parents or their the fathers really and the fathers that are a are going to be soon released from prison and they're trying to foster a good relationship with their families because if they've got a good relationship with their kids then they're significantly less likely to re-offend when they when they get out of prison so they try to put on every now and again a a day in the waiting room the meeting uh the meeting room which is quite a, a big space for dads to interact with their kids and and do an activity and it might be art or think they'd had a magician come in um so this this liaison officer booked me to do storytelling which was a challenge in the prison it, it didn't go badly it was a bit of a strange atmosphere but i think um <laughs> i think it's always a strange atmosphere in the waiting yeah. area of a, or the meeting room of a prison yeah. children enjoyed it but as you could imagine the dads were reluctant to take part they weren't really interacting they sort of, they held back a little
0: as a relatively young storyteller, do you, one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, also that I'm kind of interested in is how new technology is kind of interacting with the storyteller's life. you did a you do a sort of a tour of different sites to do with King
1: Arthur, and you were live streaming those? So that project was was funded and organized by the museum Myth Stories. The myth Stories are run by a couple called Des and Ali Correll. And they they tutored me from the very beginning when I first got into storytelling. And they are very experienced at getting Arts, arts Council funding and, and grants. So it was their 20-year anniversary last year. And they managed to get a grant for me to explore all of Shropshire's King Arthur myths and legends. And lots of counties around... Around the world, had their own claim. Around the country, sorry, have their claim to King Arthur. But Shropshire has a stronger claim than some other places for various different reasons that I won't get into now. <laughs> so I, I we, we thought of a way to capture people's imaginations and, uh, and and how to get them really involved with the with this storytelling idea. So we decided that I'd cycle around Shropshire. Um, my equivalent of my steed, and I'd go to every location where there were stories um, associated with that with that location and tell that story live live streaming it on my mobile for people to come and for people to watch um, from from home and we tweeted where I was going so people could come and meet me at the locations if they wanted to watch me do it live face to face. Uh so I did this this quest around the whole of Shropshire over three days, which covered uh hundred and hundred and thirty miles I think it was, and I camped out wild as well so on my the back of my bike, I carried a little pannier with a with a tent, so it was a proper quest <laughs> and a few hundred people watched watched uh, some of the videos when I was streaming it, so it was it was successful for for the um for the project, it was really it was really quite an eye opener to think how you could open up storytelling to a different audience with with technology.
0: It's a really nice meeting between the sort of the local folkloric elements, isn't it? The the landscape um, and getting out into nature um, and sort of the the digital technology. Uh, I thought it was very clever.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I've got I've got another idea for doing something similar when all of the uh, all of the virus uh, lockdown starts to get lifted hopefully soon I want to do a quest from the source of the River Seven down to where the river is navigable and get in a canoe and my dad has a canoe so he'll meet me there and then I'll take the canoe through uh, down from Newtown and through sort of the, the floodlands until I get to Shrewsbury where I live and along the way I'll, I'll stream all the stories connected and the folk tales with the River Seven. So that was a that's my follow up quest.
0: Do you think that um, sort of live streaming and online followings are kind of like an untapped uh, area for for storytellers at the moment?
1: Um, I think uh, it's a it's a good question because I think that the people that are watching my live streaming the only reason why they're doing that is because they've watched me do it live and they know how good the storytelling can be when they're there face to face i'm not sure whether really that when people are watching through a screen the storytelling it can work and it and you can do it quite uh, fluidly and um yeah you can you can tell a story through a screen well but the magic is lost and i think a new audience to storytelling they're not going to get hooked by watching live stream they need to watch it live so i i'm I'm, i think you've got to i I think it's a good question whether the the live streaming and the storytelling can really reach a a brand new audience and drag other people in Uh, or whether or whether it's it's just a bit but a bit cheesy or, or or cold when you're doing it through a screen <laughs> do you know do you know what I mean? Do you understand like because well, um, you can't you can't yeah. you can't react to people. You can't react to people who are are listening when you're when you're telling a story through a screen. Yeah, storytelling is a it's a two-way thing because you react and you change your the tone of the story to to the to your audience. So I think it can be a useful tool, the live streaming and doing videos, but at its best, it's still going to always be live face to face with an audience. It's the beautiful thing about storytelling that that it's best live face to face, but it also puts it puts a ceiling a, a lid on potentially the the size of the audience you can reach. I, I think the sweet spot for a storytelling audience is maybe twenty or thirty people, mm. sometimes less than that. More than that, you it it turns more into a a bit of drama or or a show. It, it's it's so it's less intimate, obviously. More more theatrical. Yes, yeah. Which I do in I enjoy telling stories to a whole school, a big school assembly where there there could be three hundred kids watching. But the 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 most the most special moments, or the most special storytelling sessions I've had is when it's, it's with a small group of children, and you can really tailor the story to to a small group
0: i do wonder what it would be like sometime in the far future when they've really got this virtual reality sorted out if you could uh go and tell tales yeah. in the hall at minus tirif or something but we're a bit far from there aren't
1: we <laughs> <laughs> that would be incredible a hologram of um bag end or something <laughs> for fire
0: yeah, no, you can only uh, you could drop in a Zoom background now, but uh, it's not quite the same thing, is it?
1: <laughs> well, it's only gonna get it's only gonna get more sophisticated. I think what storytellers have to have to do though is is not shun modern technology, and if they want the art form to reach out to a more mainstream audience, you've got to embrace it and experiment and try to play around with what what you can do with with storytelling, with, with different platforms and don't be scared if it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. So do you think you're doing sort of live streaming at the moment because of the lockdown? Do you think that will teach you lessons that you'll sort of continue with afterwards?
1: Yes, I I think I'll I'll still do some, I'll do more online streaming, uh, just just practicing doing stories to, to post because it gives me a gives me an incentive to to learn a new story which is always which is always something that I struggle with because if I know a story well I fall into the trap of just telling that story at the same same gig and I and then I'll never learn a new story or get it to the same polished standard as I've got of other stories in my in my repertoire so I'll keep practicing new stories and posting them maybe every few or every week once a week or or every month, work out some kind of uh, routine to put up a story for people to to follow. Which
0: storytellers do you enjoy watching as a, as an audience member?
1: Uh, one storyteller that really really inspired me, and at the time I was I was actually getting a little bit jaded with my storytelling. I I reached a, a plateau of. I've reached, yeah, a bit of a plateau of of my stories and I hadn't really seen any live storytelling for a while that had inspired me. And then I went to the Folk Festival at Towersy and I was booked to do some storytelling there and there was the storyteller Debbie Newbold and she was doing in one of the big tents a storytelling performance and it was... It was a big audience, there was several hundred people watching and she was retelling Shakespeare, the uh, Romeo and Juliet but she was telling it in a, a conversational way, a, 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 storytelling, a storytelling fashion, not with all the prose but every now and again she, she picked out several parts of Shakespeare's prose which she'd drop in but only, only in small parts and then she'd slip back into a more informal storytelling style and she had no props she just had a head mic and and she told this story over an hour and a half and she had several hundred adults in the palm of her hand for that whole length of time and that was really really inspiring and I was so impressed and it gave me a, a kick to, to to think how could I push my own storytelling a bit further again
0: mm. yeah it's great isn't it when you see somebody who recharges your your yeah, creative batteries like that.
1: I th- I think uh, some other storytellers as well that inspired me um, and give me good advice is um, um, Graham Langley's given me lots of good advice over the years and he he helped organise the Young Storyteller of the Year competition as well as, as part of the traditional arts team. I've got a lot to thank him for really, along with Myth Stories who have been my mentors as well from the like I said from the very start when I I first found out about. Uh, the, the storytelling competition
0: so is it would you say it's important to have uh storytelling mentors then for your own journey
1: for, for me it has been I'm not sure Well, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have got into it if I hadn't met Des and Ali from Myth Stories and they they've got a whole a whole well of experience of, and they know so many stories and and they're they're so passionate about it they they'll be patient to listen to someone who's who might not be a very good storyteller but they just need encouraging and then after a while once they've practiced a story they they can become a good storyteller so I and you need a you need someone who's passionate about storytelling to to mentor you so I think for me Des and Ali as as mentors helped me enormously otherwise I I probably would have just given up and gone down a a more mainstream route of of drama or performing.
0: You've been listening to The Tale of Wem the Dog, a guest episode of Lore and Legend with storyteller Jake Evans. You can find out more about Jake's storytelling on his website at www.jakeevansstoryteller.com and follow him on Facebook at Jake Evans Storyteller. You can find those links in the episode show notes. The Law and Legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall, with additional music from Sekilo Museum of Ancient Instruments. To find out more about episodes of Law and Legend, you can visit us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk and check out our episode blog posts. If you like what you've heard and you want to hear more, please consider joining our family of patrons in supporting the podcast. For details, visit our website and click support us to find everything that you need to become one of our StoryFolk supporters. Thanks once again for listening. We'll be back next month with another guest episode of Law and Legend. <laughs>